Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. Slate Money is brought to you by Braintree. Looking to set up payments for your business? Braintree gives your app or website a payment solution that accepts just about every payment method with one simple integration. Plus, we'll give you your first $50,000 in transactions fee-free. To learn more, visit BraintreePayments.com slash SlateMoney. And by SAP HANA. SAP HANA helps the world's best companies get the answers they need to become more agile, develop new streams of revenue, and predict the future. Run SAP and run simple. Visit SAP.com slash reimagine to learn more. And by MileIQ. If you're one of the 60 million Americans who drive for work, then you know that your miles are your dollars. Every mile you don't log is money that you are losing. MileIQ is the only miles tracker app that detects logs and calculates your miles for you, ensuring that every mile is accounted for and no dollar is lost. Try MileIQ for free today by texting Slate Money to 31996. That's Slate Money to 31996. I'm Mike Pesca, host of The Gist. It's a daily show about news and culture and whatever flits across my consciousness. It's good. It's funny. You'll like it. So recently we had a series of conversations with Fordham University criminologist John Pfaff. The issue was mass incarceration and how reform's just not that easy. At some point, we're going to have to start asking how are we going to treat violent offenders differently? And no one is really talking about that at all. 
subscribe to The Gist at iTunes.com slash Panoply or wherever you get your podcasts. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello, and welcome to the eternally thankful edition of Slate Money. Normally, your guide to the business and finance news of the week, but this week, seeing as how it's Thanksgiving, we are going to do a special Thanksgiving edition. Happy Thanksgiving to all of you. We're feeling incredibly thankful here in the Slate Money studios. And when I say we, I mean Kathy O'Neill, the data scientist and blogger at mathbabe.org. Grateful to be here. And, of course, Mr. Jordan Weissman, the Moneybox columnist here at Slate. Hello, Felix. And so this is the game that we are going to play, because what is Thanksgiving if not a good excuse to play parlor games? We and set, avoid conversations. Says the Brit. Says the Brit. <laughs> He's going to tell us about that. We're going to play charades. We're going to play charades. You're not going to be able to hear anything, and you're going to have to guess <laughs> what it is that we're thankful for. Um, no, we we have each come in with a secret thing from the world of business and finance that we are thankful for, and and I think this is the first time we haven't. Like, in advance, known what the other person is going to yeah. say. Yeah, I mean, it's... the numbers round, we normally don't know what the other people are going to say. But for this time, it's the actual entire show. We have no idea what we're going to talk about. <laughs> it's going to be fascinating. <laughs> anyway, um, but but it's, also an, it's also a fun thing to do because it's so easy to gripe and to complain and to, you know, kvetch. What in this money-grubbing universe is there actually to be thankful for? The only person who knows is Zach Dynastine, the producer of Slate Money. We've each told him what we're going to say. And it's entirely Zach's infinite wisdom that has told me, according to this piece of paper in front of me, that Kathy is going first. Hi. So I'm going to open the piece of paper where my notes are. Um, bum, 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 my, yeah. The thing I've decided I'm thankful for, and I thought about this a lot. I mean, I'm, I'm not going to give you a lot of background, but so many things I've, I'm thankful for to some extent, but then there's such huge caveats that I was like, overall, no, in the world of finance and business. So the thing I decided I'm really thankful for is kind of a background thing that everyone has and nobody thinks about. It's insurance. Insurance. The idea of insurance is to pool money and to have everybody involved in the pool to sort of donate a small amount periodically so that if anyone ever needs it, they can dip in. And what it does is essentially it makes terrible negative shocks much, much less terrible for a given person. Things that are usually pretty unpredictable shocks are are smoothed out for society. And it's also how Warren Buffett became a billionaire. So there's another way to... It's also a big, big industry. But I looked a little bit at the history of insurance. What I really want to do is I wanted to quantify how good insurance is. And that's actually kind of hard to do. Um, one way of thinking about that is like, what would our society look like without insurance? Yeah. Um, and it's it's been around for, most of the kinds of insurance have been around for almost 100 years. So it's actually kind of hard to know because 100 years ago, the world looked really well, different. Well, one thing we can do is you can look at China. And what happens in China is that there's no real social safety net. And you know, social security is insurance. You know, Medicaid is insurance. It's insurance against, you know, needing money when you need it. And because there's no social safety net in China, 
it becomes incumbent on families to save up money, you know, in case of a rainy day, in case they need it. And it's all done, this insurance, this sort of self-insurance is done on a family basis. And what you find is that in the U.S., you have a savings rate of, you know, 1% or 2%. And in China, you have a savings rate of 40 or 45%. And that is not entirely explained by this whole lack of social insurance, but largely that you get this paradox of thrift. This is not good for the economy to have a savings rate of 40%. That's a bad thing. It just, you know, it doesn't cause enough. You need more consumption than that. But if you don't have insurance, that's what you wind up with. Well, I was going to say, for China, it actually works out pretty decent or has worked out pretty decently up until now because when you have that kind of savings rate, you get, it makes it basically cheaper for businesses to borrow money and it helps you have an investment-led economy, yada, yada. Now it's biting them in the ass, <laughs> you're saying. But I think also just, you know... You're saying we should be thankful for insurance. The second you said that, it's like, yeah, I guess that is like one of the the few, like almost indisputably good things we have come up with in the 20th century. If you think about like what is 20th century government, it, it basically it was realizing we needed to have a a public insurance system. That yeah. is the most important. That is arguably the most uh, important progressive uh, accomplishment of. Period. Yeah, I agree. I looked into um, all sorts of insurance, car insurance, health insurance, unemployment insurance, uh, life insurance and disability insurance. And although they all have kind of ancient roots, except car insurance, um, (laughs) there's actually the sort of institutionalization of them where you sort of have regulations around this requirements in certain cases that all happened basically post depression as a response to the depression because it was just so the negative shocks were so terrible and were so Although inhumane life insurance in the form of tontines goes back well beyond yes well before the um what is a tontine wait explain that i feel this Kathy, sounds fascinating do you want to tell no i don't know what a no, tontine t- is no. tontines are the most fascinating thing they're, they're ways of betting that someone else is going to die which is you can imagine <laughs> that there's a certain amount of like moral um dubiousness around these things but they were huge in the 19th century i believe and i think even earlier than that that you would get these people all pooling together their money and they would get payouts from the pool and the pool was a certain size and if people in the pool died then they wouldn't get payouts anymore and so you're basically getting more money the more people in your pool Die. So it's like it sounds almost like revert. Was it something you would take out for it's, like a business partner or something like someone you didn't want to die? But it, it's it's or a way of protecting it? yourself against um, longevity risk in okay. that sense. You know, it's a little bit like a pension. And you know those those kinds of instruments, and that brings up another issue, which is like obviously the insurance industry isn't perfect. Um, there is actually a sort of new set of instruments, financial instruments about life insurance, and you can buy people's life insurance policies, and then you can short them. I mean, there's also various ways that nowadays, you know, modern finance has made it possible for you to bet against somebody's life. Of course, that's not how they frame it. They frame it as, you know, we think that the, uh, what do they call those? Well, it's called okay. selling them an annuity. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. okay. <laughs> that too. I mean, the, you know, the, it's there's, there's two risks which can't work against each other, right? There's longevity risk and mortality risk. And if you want to bet that someone is going to die, then you sell them an annuity and you're like, ka-ching, because yeah. they die and you only make three payments and you get the rest that's of it. That's right, that's right. And then if you want to bet that they're going to live a long time, you sell them life insurance. Right. So one of the things I found interesting is car insurance. Yeah. Car insurance is a little different from some of these other insurances because 
basically, we all know that car insurance is split into two kinds of insurance, liability insurance and, co- and collision insurance. And collision insurance, which is like protect yourself, protect your car, is not required, but liability is required. Guess how long it took after the, the car was invented before liability insurance was invented? The liability it's like three and a half weeks. Like. <laughs> Eleven years. That's it was a, like, that's not wow. long. Like, it, well, it happened in, in 1897 before almost anyone had cars. Yeah. Like, you know, it, so it was just all immediately understood that just because you could afford a car doesn't mean you could afford the damages you could do with this car. And so that brings us to the question of like, what kind of insurance is good for the, for society versus good Should for the individual? Should gun owners be forced to carry liability right. insurance? Well, this, is, this has been a, yeah, this is, uh, that's a hot uh, debate and it's mostly gun control uh, advocates who are for it because they want to make owning a gun more expensive but also because the idea is that you externalize your co- guns are the sort of thing that uh, have external costs namely you often accidentally shoot people and so you should be able to you know pay for that when it happens um, but yeah that's one of the that's one of the hotter sorry I just like went on a rant now but I, 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 I kind of geek out on the specific subject that's <laughs> cool and it, it and also I mean if you think about it other kinds of insurance like health insurance yeah. it doesn't have a direct externality to uh, you know other people but indirectly if we have a bunch of people without health insurance there are problems as an economy okay so this is where I'm going to be a bit weird in English about this concept of health insurance, which means two different things to me. One is the insurance thing, which is that we're all generally healthy. And in the event of some medical catastrophe, there could be massive bills and you and the whole point about insurance is protecting you against, you know, catastrophic events that you couldn't otherwise afford. And that's an important part of health insurance. But then in America especially, but also in other countries, it has this other meaning, which is just the entity which pays for your doctor's visits, your regular prescriptions, and the sort of entirely predictable day-in, day-out costs of keeping yourself healthy. And it seems to me that that's not really insurance. Yeah. and So you want to separate like the predictable stuff from the unpredictable stuff. Right. I feel like insurance is insurance against the unpredictable. You can't insure against something which you know is going to happen. That's silly. Those those two ideas have definitely been merged, but I think it just kind of makes sense in a way. I mean, in the end, what's driving up... The, I mean, people sometimes complain about this on, on a policy level. Like, you'll see conservatives will make this, this point specifically, that in America, you know, we should have catastrophic... We should make sure catastrophic plans are available to everybody once you start incorporating the, those regular everyday costs into it that drives up the expense uh, for insuring yourself. But the, the, it gets so complicated after a point. If you start segmenting the two, it's hard to divide them. It, uh, the, well, let me explain. It's not hard to divide them. It, it why is, is it well, here's, why it's, well, here's why I think well, we shouldn't divide them. Here's yeah. an argument against it, which is that people who don't do their sort of general upkeep end up being more expensive in the long run. I mean, it's, it, it's a conceivable right, you thing. You can underwrite those people. You know, you can underwrite that risk. Mm-hmm. But, it's you know, I'm just saying that they're conceptually two different things, and they're not that hard to disentangled. Yeah. yeah, but but there is the issue that once you say to people you're going to have to cover the cost of your preventative care, you are they're going to spend less on it and they are going to try to spend as little as possible and that really is setting up um, problems down the road like So, so okay, so, so this is this is the And so it's genius, part of the same system, yeah. This is well, it's a different system, but what you have is you have the catastrophic health insurance system and then on top of that, 
you have a commitment device. The, you, what you do is you charge someone $400 a month for health insurance, and they have to pay that anyway. And then you say, now you're paying your $400 a month. You get all of your health care for free. And then they go, oh, good. So then they get the health care yes. they need. If they don't pay $400 a month, if they just pay like $100 a month for catastrophic health insurance, they wouldn't spend that three hundred, the extra $300 on regular health care because they would feel to themselves, hmm, if I don't go to the doctor, I'll save myself $300. Yeah, and thank you for explaining that so perfectly. And it brings me to the, the reason I chose this topic, besides the fact that I am actually helpful, thankful when I think about it, is that most people kind of hate insurance because it's human nature to assume the best. It's human nature to say, I don't need oh the checkup. Kathy, you're so shiny and happy. I no, can tell I you, some of us don't always assume the best. We assume, assume no, the I'm best just, about ourselves. But my point being, like, <laughs> everybody like regrets their insurance costs. And they say, oh, this is just overpriced and it's not worth it. But as a whole, we're better off sort of being forced to pay the insurance so that in, in a moment of catastrophe, we're covered. By the way, that just I just want to finish by saying... One pet peeve of mine is, going back to what you're complaining about with health insurance, is dental insurance. Dental insurance is not typically actually insurance. It, no, I know. I have a dental insurance plan which has a maximum. Yes. It's, it's like All the of opposite All of, of, of insurance. Rather than protect you against a catastrophic expense, they're like, oh, if there's a catastrophic expense, we're not going to cover any of exactly. that. Exactly. That's what bothers me about dental insurance. So everybody should know dental insurance is basically saying we will cover only predictable costs and not it's catastrophic so costs. Okay. So that's insurance. We can all make a little sign of thankfulness. I don't know. I know nothing of Thanksgiving. I'm English, but we'll do whatever Americans... Just eat a little bit more yams. We'll eat, <laughs> we'll eat some cranberry relish. Have a little more pie. And we'll come to the next thing after I talk to you guys about Braintree, which is the sponsor of Slate Money this week. So you're an app developer. Well, you're probably not an app developer, but if you're an app developer... What you want to do is make lots of money. And the way you make lots of money is you make it really easy for people to spend money. So let's say you want to build an Uber app or an Airbnb app or a GitHub app. You know what all the people who build those apps did? They used Braintree for their payments because it just makes everything easy. When you pay on Uber, it's easy. And it's just as easy for your app as it is in Uber. So you get fast payouts. It's completely seamless. It's continuous support. So check it out. Visit braintreepayments.com slash slate money. You can take PayPal. You can take Venmo. You can even accept Bitcoin. Why you'd want to accept Bitcoin, I am not entirely sure. But you can accept Bitcoin. You can do anything you want with Braintree. So braintreepayments.com slash slate money. So the next topic, I'm told by Zach Dynastine, is me. I get to I get to introduce the what am I thankful for topic. I'll interject that I'm thankful for not having to have prepared for this. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever it is, yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna hope I can make some snarky, like sarcastic. <laughs> by the way, I just before we go on, that. can I just say like based on the quality of responses from you two yeah. from the last segment. I am now convinced you never prepare at all because you guys were amazing as usual. And oh, I'm like, thank you. So you, have you, have I, you discovered my secret? <laughs> <laughs> I think I have. Okay, so my topic is, and it's not nearly as big or grand as insurance. It's a bit wonkier, but it's one of those financial innovations which has come along in the past couple of decades, which has 
saved millions of people, billions of dollars, and is just becoming more and more popular. And it's one of those financial innovations. There are very few financial innovations which you kind of want to cheer on from the sidelines and say, yay, go, more derivatives. Yay, go, more collateralized <laughs> debt obligations. But this one, you're going, yay, go, we should have more and more of this. And this one is index funds. Okay. Okay. Um, it, index funds, exchange-traded funds, basically passive investing. It used to be, and it really was not that long ago, if you just go back one generation, if you wanted to invest in the stock market, you needed to either pick stocks or pick a mutual fund manager or a set of stocks or a set of mutual fund managers. And picking stocks is impossible and picking fund managers is even more impossible. And eventually someone worked out that they could package the index, basically. And rather than try and outperform the market or anything like that, they would just create a mutual fund, only the mutual fund would be a robot. And all it would do would be to buy all of the stocks in the Dow, like one of each, say. Like, that's a simple one. Or the more, slightly more sophisticated one is, I'm going to buy the S&P 500 in exactly the right proportions. And then you just sit back and do nothing. So let me just back up one second, just in case there are people who don't normally listen to Slate Money, but are on special occasion listening to Slate Money. The Dow Jones Industrial Average is what? Okay, it's uh, an index. Ignore, it's not an index. It is it's not, we, it's not we, an index. We've it's an had average. a we have literally had okay. a, a debate about this. But let's this not where be we, too technical. Anyway. Okay. Let's just let's be so, broad. Okay, so let's let's put the Dow to one side because the Dow is really stupid. Okay, um, we agree on the fact that it's stupid. Yes, um, but let's talk about the S and P five hundred because the S and P five hundred is the general benchmark that everyone uses for the stock market as a whole. What it is, it's the five hundred biggest listed companies in the United States. And it's weighted according to how big they are. So it's basically if you add them all up, it's that. It's, so if you, you have a you, tiny bit, you add them, put them all together in one big bucket and you buy a tiny little share of that bucket. Right. So just just to be clear about what the index fund has done is that in the past, if you wanted if you wanted to buy a piece of the market, you wanted your, your portfolio, your stocks to mimic the market as a whole, you'd literally have to buy 500 things. No. I mean, if, no, if you want to mimic the market as a whole, you need to buy every single stock in the market and there are thousands. But it's not so much that it was difficult to do this before. It's that that wasn't something that people even thought about doing before that people never came in and sort of said i just want to mirror the performance of the stock market they went in there and what you did when you bought stocks i'm going you know talking 30 40 years, years ago what you did when you bought stocks is you would look at this huge menu of options it would be a bit like going to a restaurant and saying do i want the beef or the steak or the lamb or the fish and you would say i'd pick that one and that one you know and then you would talk to your financial advisor to try and work out which ones to buy. You would use screenings and tabs and, you know, all manner of clever analysis to try and work out which ones were cheap, which ones were expensive, which ones were going up, which ones were going down. You would look at lines on charts. You would get confused and frustrated. And then you would say, you know what, I don't have time to do this. So I'm just going to hire someone else to do it for me. And then you would hire a mutual fund manager to do it for you. But then what mutual fund managers would do would be exactly that. And they try and work out which were the good stocks to buy. So you're, you're arguing that the, the index funds are great because you get rid of all this voodoo. Yes. And m moreover, fees. Yes. So one of my favorite things about index funds is I think they kind of show you how good things can come out of imperfect ideas. Um, because index funds were, and the growing popularity was 
in a way, a response to the idea of efficient markets, right? Was, was it to, to some degree? It's like a little bit, they're, maybe. They're, yeah, I mean, some of their. I mean, if you go back to the history of how they are created, I don't think um, Van, the guys at Vanguard were sitting there and be like, Eugene Pham has got some great ideas. Let's let, let's make something to mimic this. But their growing popularity was uh, over the eighties. I, I I think is partly a response to that, and. The fact is, efficient markets, it's the idea is you can't really beat the market as a whole. It's that it's a random walk. You can't really predict where the, where stocks are going to go. It's just like it's that the market incorporates information so quickly once it becomes public that no individual brain is going to, to beat the, the high but you mind. Don't even, you but you don't need to go anywhere near that strong sense of efficient markets in order to think that index funds are a good idea. All you need to do is say, well... Statistically speaking, let's say you can beat the market. Statistically speaking, half the stocks are going to outperform and half are going to underperform, or half the mutual fund managers are going to outperform and half are going to underperform. The fact is that Joe Schmo Schlub, me, has no idea which half is which. I, I, I think that's true. And I was just going to say, the nice thing about index funds is that you don't actually have to believe as thorough, like that, you know, efficient markets are gospel. And as we've learned over time, they're probably not people. You don't need to believe yeah. in inefficient markets at all. Well, to I think, think that efficient, but you just have to know that you're, you, you yourself but are that, ignorant. But that yeah. was, that was the, I, I think efficient markets were, is what kind of started the notion that, that we should be really wary of these stock picking wizards and such and the, these uh, heroic fund managers who are going to turn your money magically into more see, money. I, be, I, mean, no, no, I agree. Huge, I think it was the, a huge part of it. And I, that okay. was a huge part of it. I, I don't I mean, think Efficient it was. markets as a theory pushes back against this voodoo stuff that you were complaining about. It's yeah. another way of saying, forget all that. Yeah. I, I just, I mean, maybe, maybe it was. And I can see that these things have a family resemblance to each other. But... I can completely invest in index funds and think it's a really good idea to invest in index funds, even if I completely believe that it's possible to be an amazing stock picker and to outperform the market. Those things are in no way contradictory. I, 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 I'm saying, though, that, that there was a uh, – these two ideas overlapped. And some of the people – like A Random Walk Down Wall Street, some of the more famous books, that like investment guides from that era, and it still gets reprinted. And, and it was sort of – espoused both, right? It talked about like kind of passive investing and – a, fit, well, a random walk down Wall Street is literally a random walk. Efficient markets. My personal feeling is, yeah. I do think I, I do think it's possible to outperform the market. I think that's what hedge funds that yeah. work know how to do, and I do think some hedge funds actually do it. But I personally don't have the time or the patience to do it. So if I'm and investing more, my money, you don't personally have the time or the patience even to work out which hedge funds are going to outperform exactly. as opposed to underperform. Plus, I don't have enough money to invest in a hedge fund. Yeah, so I, there you go. And, you know, and also... It, and that's actually a great thing about index funds, right? You don't need a lot of money to invest in an index fund. Like you Bank can buy of America. an ETF for, you know, a buck. Well, this is... And we've talked about robo-advisors before on this show. And for those who may have missed that episode, the thing about an index fund is you can put, you could theoretically put all of your money just into... The S like something attracts the S and P five hundred, but like Felix is saying, that's probably not necessarily a good idea because that's not the entire market. It's actually just one piece of the market. It's only American. Yeah, it's only American. So you're, and more to the point, it's only stocks. It's only and, stocks, and it's a good idea to have some exposure to bonds as well. Exactly, you want to diversify into smaller stocks, bonds, and such. And so that's where 
a lot of people say, okay, well, I need some kind of advisor to help me with this. And so now what you have is robo-advisors, which say, okay, we're going to have an algorithm. We're not even going to have a human do it. We're going to have an algorithm basically put your money into different index funds, into different indexes, different ETFs, and make it super cheap and super easy to invest. And this is sort of, I think, it's sort of the next iteration of this passive investing and idea. And it, it makes is, it affordable to everyone. And I like, I like robo-advisors. I will push back on the idea that this is the cheapest way to do it. I don't think they are. They at, they do add a layer of fees onto just buying the ETFs yourself. So if you bought the ETFs yourself, it would be cheaper. And what's more, the cheapest way to do it has always and will always be Vanguard. You know, I'm, I'm going to do a sort of unpaid ad for Vanguard here. <laughs> they are the gold standard of passive investing. You can buy a target date fund from Vanguard, which includes everything. They have a great range of index funds. They have a wonderful sort of quasi non-profit structure which makes it very very hard to compete with them if you're a for-profit in, um, uh, investment advisor and i spent a lot of time thinking and writing about whether there's something better than vanguard or even better than vanguard but what we can all agree on is that vanguard is the kind of gold standard and it's really good and no one is going to think that you're stupid if you just put all of your money in vanguard and that's probably the cheapest way to do it although we're not giving investment advice even the U.S. stock market. I'm totally fall. giving investment advice. You are okay. Put, put your money into Vanguard. Wow. <laughs> okay, so that's you heard it here, funds. people. That that's index funds, which um, I didn't get too much pushback on that one. I, I was kind of hoping for some pushback. Well, I was. I, if you want pushback, I would say that like getting everyone to invest in the stock market is like political power that scares me because it's at the end of the day controlled by corporations. I mean, I guess the only other thing you might say is what hap- I mean, people are kind of curious what happens to the market as as index funds, you know, investing kind of takes over and a higher and higher percentage becomes passive money. Um, but I don't know if we really have have to worry about that. Yeah, I think I think there's going to be more than enough marginal price setting going on. You can even yeah. have ninety percent being passive, and the other ten yeah. percent will still someone's going to discover it. Yeah, that's going to be fine. It. Slate Money is also sponsored by SAP HANA, which helps the world's best companies get the answers they need to become more agile, develop new streams of revenue, predict the future, just like those fund managers, the good ones who outperform those ones. Reimagine the way you do business, run SAP, run simple. Visit sap.com slash reimagine to learn more. And finally, Jordan, what are you thankful for? So I'm, we're going to uh, take a drive away from finance now to the drive-in. Uh, my <laughs> You're thankful for drive-ins? No, uh, drive-through. I apologize, for the drive-through. Um, so, yeah. I'm Wait, thankful, you're thankful for McDonald's? I'm thankful for McDonald's. Yeah, that's... Holy that, crap. That, so, what? Yeah, I'm thankful. I, I did some thinking about this. Um, the other morning, I was, I was contemplating, what am I going to talk you about? You eat breakfast at McDonald's, don't you? I eat breakfast regularly at McDonald's. I actually had a McGriddle this morning. I had a bacon, egg, and cheese McGriddle. Okay, you're going to get so much pushback on wow. McDonald's yeah, I know. the two of us. Typically, Typically, I this I, is the cl- this is the most slate pitchy that Jordan yeah, Weisman has ever been. I he's, feel like you could go got, to Walmart and that would be worse, but that's about he's it. He's <laughs> got his he's finally got his slate wings on this podcast. Yeah. But. So <laughs> wait, no. So here's yeah. I know. So hear me out. Hear me out. McDonald's now we associate it with I think a lot of our listeners probably bad food now currently. A lot of them are going to poop at McDonald's is, you know, burgers and fries and whatnot. We associate it with bad labor uh, standards. Terrible labor standards. Terrible labor standards. I think, I think you need to appreciate McDonald's partly for its historical import, 
but also for the fact that it, today, even still today, does guarantee a, a certain baseline level quality of food, basically around the world and around the country. But going back to what McDonald's did, right? If you think about it, is before. Wait, it, are you thankful for McDonald's? I am thankful. It's like I, the isn't. I'm feeling like the pink goo is coming back to my yeah, brain. The pink, is, the pink goo is okay. I love what, what McDonald's. No, no, but you have to think okay. about. But you have to think about what McDonald's is responsible for as a company, right? Yes. Which is everything bad. Yes, everything <laughs> bad. Um, but. In the 1950s, before, you know, there were a few chains. I mean, the idea of a chain restaurant goes back to, like, the railroad era. They were, like, small. I think they were, like, small ones that, you know, opened up along the stops to serve passengers. But the 1950s was when we saw fast food chains really kind of, you know, blossom in America. And and, th- and McDonald's was the biggest piece of that. And the reason I, that I, I'm really thankful for that is because, you got to remember, there was no baseline quality for food around the country. There was no like easy, relatively affordable, you know, guaranteed, fairly clean place you could go eat anywhere, pretty much anywhere in the country. You had to rely on whatever was local. It was. It, oh how, my god! No, how should need the to... local food be worse? <laughs> because no, seriously. I mean, no. Like, I want a food historian to pop in right now. No, but like, I mean, have you ever? I mean, have you ever just gone to? I mean. It was not like it was easy to find a good thing to eat on a highway. There were elaborate guides to highway eating because people were like, who God only knows what they're cooking up in the back there. But <laughs> so like, because seriously, you yeah, had no, it, could, it could be as bad as McDonald's. Anyway, but no, I mean, McDonald's, <laughs> exactly. is, not, McDonald's is not going to kill you for the most part. It's like, it's, and well, it's was like, there, was there an epidemic of, people of do, people uh, getting killed by highway food in the 1940s? I doubt the data was that great any on food diner, poisoning. Any yeah. diner, and I go to, I'm, any a special, diner, I'm a diner aficionado. Any diner is, on average, better than than McDonald's. I like, don't. I have never been to a diner, well, also, and I'm like, this this hamburger is as bad as McDonald's. Well, also, the diners have to compete in food quality with all the fast food restaurants now. But anyway, so what I'm they, they that's do, why they're they're better than McDonald's. I, I would say that's I, it sets a baseline level for what food should the, what, what food absolutely what kind should be, of food but, do you think used to exist in the I, in the 1950s that needed McDonald's to you, make it better? I mean, like, have you ever like gone back and look? I mean, like, people were not exactly wealthy in the 1950s. Like, okay. food was like so. Before I get into my what food quality probably was like in the 50s, because frankly, I wasn't eating a lot of it, and neither neither were you. The reason I think we should admire McDonald's is what they did was they figured out a, a a really efficient system to cheaply and effectively make hamburgers, make shakes, make what what make their products uh, on a consistent basis. But then it's also a real estate play. This is like the heart of franchising, right? When they first started as a business and they were starting to expand, McDonald's was not profitable. The idea of real of franchising was essentially you would give someone a license to open up restaurants in a geographic area. And what McDonald's figured out was that wasn't going to make the money. What they could do, though, was they could become a landlord. And what they would do is they would rent a space for about 20 years and then charge rent to the franchisee in that specific location. And over time, they'd be guaranteed money as the value of the rent they were getting back went up and the cost of their lease stayed even. And so this became their business play over time. And that worked for a lot of different companies. And now you see McDonald's charges rent based on the amount of sales that their uh, locations do. It's about 16%, which is actually pretty high for the industry. But that was it was a business innovation as much as anything else. So it allowed them to expand all over the country. And you finally got this fat, you got a fast food boom, you got an industrialized food boom, which again, now we take for granted having, and it's not just in we, the idea of having, you know, chains all over the country where you can go, if you don't like McDonald's, you can go to Chipotle down the street at pretty much any major American city or suburb. But that is the, that is the heart of it. And that's what guaranteed you could find something pretty decent to eat any part of okay, America. Okay, so you are thankful for America's industrialized food boom. You are thankful for the fact that you can buy a hamburger 
for a dollar. Yes, which absolutely. is insane. Yes, I am absolutely. I am absolutely thankful for the fact that food has been has remained relatively affordable for people. Wait, wait, wait. Just yeah. I, because I actually I think they're pro- I wrote think, about this recently. Yeah. A hundred years ago, we spent 43% of our income on food, and now we spend less than 10% of our income on food. Exactly. We do not pay enough for food. Well, you can That's t- my conclusion, and specifically and sp- because of McDonald's. And specifically what McDonald's has done is that it has been the single biggest force in the two most destructive parts of industrialized ag- agriculture in terms of environmental damage, and that is, number one, corn and number two beef and beef is basically just corn reconfigured into a cow um what mcdonald's has done is it has destroyed the living agriculture of the americas and turned it into a one massive great corn farm and has created uncountably enormous amounts of environmental damage in doing so. I think, and, I, and, and on top of that, it mistreats animals and all the rest of it. Well, I, the mistreating animals is neither here nor there for me. But anyway, I want to come back to your point gonna, that we need to pay more for food. Is that you're, It's very easy to say that as someone who can afford, who has that margin in their budget. But keeping down the price of food... We is also more, have to raise the minimum wage. Okay, but that, these are separate. The, the, I They're mean, not uh, separate. They are separate. To no, separate. one of the reasons we don't raise the minimum wage is because we're like, oh, food is cheap. It's a it's a it's a supply and demand I don't th- issue. No, I don't think that's the issue. We, why we don't raise. I do want to give wage. you one point though, yeah. which is that I think they probably have innovated supply chain management. Yes, Yay. absolutely. I'm they, so thankful no, they, for McDonald's because they innovated supply chain management. You guys are throwing questions at me. I want to throw a question at you. Are you guys sincerely you, the? Now, it, like now, in the modern wave of chains, franchising's kind of got out of fashion. But the idea of the massive chain restaurant in America probably would not exist had it had it not been for companies like McDonald's. Good, so, I hate no, massive chain. No, restaurants. so you actually, so you're not happy about the fact that you can go to Chipotle or to a now Sweet Green in New York, pretty much you, and just find something you like easily or that you don't have to make hard decisions every morning about where you're going to go for breakfast if you're driving down a highway you don't have to figure out what random place you're going to stop in and hopefully you not how, get you poisoned what, by the Jordan, chef in the back as a perfectly normal yeah. person uh-huh. the vast majority of my life is not spent in unfamiliar locations the vast majority of my life is spent in locations which I know and where I know where the good places to eat are when in that tiny minority of my life I am traveling do I want to go to some chain restaurant? No, I want to discover something awesome and local. Yeah, one of the reasons I travel is to try new food. I mean, yeah, but I'm not talking, talking about people to travel. People. people travel on business. People, yes, travel, when I travel on always try new food. Okay, well, I think that's sort of a like at that point. Are not, not it's going not to, so I could try new food. Yeah, it's, it's, just but, to try new food. No, like. but, but, but no, but yeah. Jordan, I mean, yeah. you must have traveled, you must have gone on some kind of reporting trip or something. Are you honestly trying to tell us that when you're traveling, you know, not for pleasure, but Ooh. just for work, you you think to yourself, well, I could seek out something awesome and local, but no, I think I'm just going to go to McDonald's. Is there any way, Zach? There are, t- there are absolutely times where I say I want to go find something interesting local, or sometimes I say I want a goddamn McMuffin. Also, <laughs> like, I think there's... I think we should, you, I think we should that ask that our the, listeners. I want to I yeah, figure out how to I, do a I'm, poll. I'm actually a little shocked that you do not think there's any benefit to having... Uh, re- like restaurants around the country that are standardized, familiar, and that are 
essentially always competent at what they do. And I actually do. I do know what you're talking about. Yeah, and the, I fact have, that, that, that's, the fact that that is not... Not with restaurants. Not with restaurants with at brands. all. With brands. Like, I actually appreciate when I'm in a place that I don't know anything about that there's a Doritos and there's Sam Adams. You know, I know. I understand that, like, in a given situation, you might want to have a familiar taste. If you go yeah. into a strange bar in Liberia, you know, you order the Johnny Walker because exactly. you know it's going to be... I want to hear about your story about a strange bar in Liberia, <laughs> Felix. What brought you there? I, I, I'm starting to think your business travels are more interesting than mine. But within the United States, yeah. brand, you know, chain restaurants are absolutely a bad thing. I see. I, I people also. That's also coming from you. You like, Matt. You like variety. Yeah, you like variety. A, not is everyone. A good thing. Not everyone likes that. A lot of people. Is a a lot of, your typical consumer does not love endless variety. They like the familiar. And like, I and think you're. They at, are but, wrong. Well, okay. And that, okay. <laughs> you're basically saying. <laughs> this is a good. I, this is a good fight. I yeah, think, I honestly want to figure out how to poll our listeners. Like, yeah, no, we should be able sure. to have some kind of poll on the web page or something. Right, what it comes down to is, I'm glad that McDonald. Are you grateful for McDonald's? I'm grateful because McDonald's figured out business model that allowed the blossoming of the American chain restaurant. And it was not an obvious ooh, business ooh. model. I just thought of something to be grateful for w- with respect to chains. Yeah. Starbucks, which is terrible. Ugh. We all hate Starbucks. It's not terrible. But that, Starbucks, again, Starbucks let me is finish. It's that baseline for what Starbucks should be around the country. Excuse me. Okay. Starbucks, when it became a chain, yeah. actually introduced better coffee to many parts of the country. Uh, it also decimated good coffee places all over the no, country. No, there were, yeah, there, there were no, so few I worked at a place in there, Boston there where it closed. There have never been more good coffee there places. There were so few good coffee places than before Starbucks. Since Starbucks opened. And what invariably happened when a Starbucks opened is that people discovered that coffee could actually be good. And then they wound up going more to the good so coffee So that's a good places. thing about Starbucks. So I don't have a problem with Starbucks driving people into good coffee places. I have a problem with, you know, the coffee at Starbucks. But I... 100% disagree that any high-end coffee shop, any coffee shop which was better than Starbucks, was hurt by Starbucks. Starbucks hurt coffee shops which were worse than Starbucks. Coffee Connection I, in Boston was bought by Starbucks. That's I, what happened. Now It was better than Starbucks. I am amazed, Felix, that you can so quickly say, oh, of course Starbucks raised the quality of coffee in this country and, and brought people to coffee, but dismiss the idea that maybe McDonald's had a similar Because McDonald's food is terrible. Because in, I, in, 19, in 1955, Even in 1955, okay. Jordan. Yes. Okay, what, what we have yeah. with Starbucks is it came into a country where there was a lot of really, really, really bad coffee, even worse than Starbucks coffee. Yes, it did. Yes. I just do not believe that the world that McDonald's came into was there was a world where there was lots of really, really, really bad food, even worse than McDonald's food, because I can't even imagine even worse than the McDonald's food. It is about the quintessential worst food you can get. Well, first off, I don't one thing to say here is McDonald's food has not been 100 percent the same the entire you know time of its existence. It has evolved a bit. And I'd I'm guessing it probably doesn't taste identical now. As it, even though a McDonald's burger will taste the same anywhere in the world, I doubt it tastes the same now as it did in 1955. However, I think this is something to pull our listeners on. I think that since it's completely, this is a matter of opinion, if there are any listeners who are eating at McDonald's in 1955 by chance, if there are any out there, please weigh in. So yeah, do do email us, slatemoney at slate.com, and say... Jordan there's, is absolutely right. I'm thankful for McDonald's. Chain restaurants are great, I think especially there's a chain it fast as food. As and we should then. be thankful for the fact that we live in a country with McDonald's. Or, conversely, what the fuck, Jordan? <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> I just lost my headphone. Okay, all right, I'm back. Okay, right. We we have one more sponsor this week, which is MileIQ, the app which makes you money. You don't need anybody else's money because you are owed money for all of that driving that you do on business and never claim because it's too difficult. It is now easy. You just install the MileIQ app on your phone and it will automatically work out every single car journey you've taken and then you can select all of the ones which a business say business 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 and then it will add them all up and the average mile like you user gets over five hundred dollars a month in drives that's over six thousand dollars a year in miles you could be claiming so Download MileIQ, the number one mileage tracker app more than a million Americans are using it so text Slate Money to 31996. You'll get your 40 drive free trial. You'll get 20% off your annual plan. And it will cost you no more than the cost of a single text message. And we are going to end this week with a Thanksgiving-themed numbers round where we all need to come up with a number that we are thankful for. And this was Kathy's idea, so she's going first. Um, okay, I'm I'm thankful for the number 17 which is the mascot number of the math camp I went to in high school. And every What's the mascot number. It's the like we have a mascot number. At, it's a math camp. And and you chose it because it's prime obviously. Well, it's it's actually also the most random number. If you ask somebody to say pick a random number, they'll say 17. So it's the least probability random like number. 40. <laughs> <laughs> it's also there's also every summer at my math camp there's a 17 talk where we talk about interesting facts about the number 17 and my favorite is a teenage boy has a sexually related thought every 17 seconds. <laughs> That's my number. You're welcome, people. Uh, never be a teenage boy. Um, my number, since Jordan is asking Siri what his number is, <laughs> my, my, my number that I'm thankful for is I. I feel wow. like the, the square root of minus one is a number which just completely transformed the way that the world works. And especially, so there's this idea, because of the nomenclature here, that what's known as real numbers are real, and that imaginary numbers are imaginary. And there's something more real about real numbers and something less real about imaginary numbers. This is complete crap. They're all just figments of um, mathematical space, as it were. And there's nothing more real about two than there is about two i and once you realize that the num numbers don't just go in a straight line but they they actually fill an entire plane once you understand radial geometry once you understand that you know a circle is the same as two pi and most importantly once you start getting into your like Feynman diagrams and things and you can start modeling intranuclear physics using imaginary numbers, and that's the only way you can sensibly model them, that you suddenly realize that without the invention of I, without using imaginary numbers, virtually nothing we take for granted in this world in terms of sort of electronics and technology would even be possible. Wow. My number is, uh, I should say uh, to the audience, we decided we were going to do a number we were most thankful for as we were sitting down to have this Thanksgiving <laughs> episode. So this is this is a little... Another a weak defense yeah, of this number. Extemporizing uh, on Jordan's part. What am I really thankful for? For some reason, the first number that came to mind was uh, 
meters per second squared, uh, which is... You're thankful for gravity? I'm thankful for gravity, because frankly, without gravity, none of us would fucking be here right now. Uh, That's basically the creation of the entire universe is due, or they think, and planets, is due to the force of gravity. But the force of gravity is a universal thing. It's only 9.8 meters per second squared I'm, I'm, on the surface of the Earth. Yeah, I know. Well, I'm my picking, number 17 but, is only a mascot at my math camp. Yeah, so, so, you know, I mean, <laughs> I, I'm going loosely here. I mean, I happen to like the fact that I'm sitting down here on Earth and I don't have to worry about flow. But no, I, I just think as a symbol for an important, like, force idea. You guys are way deeper than me, too. You know, I, sorry, I had my mind on how I was going to sleep pitch McDonald's earlier. <laughs> I kind of I kind of maybe shortchanged my number. I apologize. No, everyone. I like it. I like I it. It's a good number. Yeah, anyway, 9.8. I'm, I'm Actually, now I wish I had said the speed of light, but whatever. Okay, we're good. What is the speed of I'm, light? I'm really thankful for the speed of light. I have no idea. Can you just, can you just call it C? Sure, let's call it C. Siri, what is the speed of light? <laughs> I, I think we'll just call it C. The um, speed of light is... Two hundred ninety-nine million seven hundred ninety-two thousand four hundred fifty-eight meters per second. In case you're wondering, Zach, are you thankful for that? Can we just because we make that your number? I I love the speed of light. Awesome, it's oh. my favorite speed. I, I also like the idea of Zach's voice as the new Siri. But <laughs> <laughs> all right, on, on which on which you know dulcet note, and frankly, we should have Zach. Jo- we should just record this podcast and then get Zach to read out all of the yes, parts because you, you just get voice. to listen to Zach <laughs> the dulcet the stylings of, <laughs> of Zach Dynasty. The, 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 uh, so thank you um, Zach Dynasty for producing, for being dulcet and for <laughs> trying to bring some order to this chaotic episode of Slate Money. Thank you to all of you guys for listening to Slate fun. Money in general, to listening to Slate Money today. Thank you to Kathy. Thank you to Jordan. Thank you to who do people thank on Thanksgiving? They just thank everyone. It's just a, it's like an Oscar acceptance yeah. speech, isn't it? Yeah, it is. I, I'd like to say I think Adele. Thank you to Adele. Thank you, thank you, Adele. Adele. Did you finally listen to the album? I, I all weekend, all listened. Did, so good. Did you like stand in front of a fan and have your hair blow back? Absolutely, like, what I did. You? Yes. I'd like. I would just like to say I think that in, in grand uh, Thanksgiving dinner conversation tradition, we had a, we had some good fights on this episode. I I, I, I honestly, I'm still. I still can't quite believe that you managed to be thankful for McDonald's. On Thanksgiving. It's so evil. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> and I love my McMuffin. Anyway. Wow. wow. So, uh, but although I will say that McDonald's coffee is better than Starbucks coffee. I think that's, that's some hipsterism. How? I, I, don't, I don't agree with that. But Okay. And thank you also to Andy Bowers. Check out all of the panoply podcasts at itunes.com slash panoply next week will be more sane and probably less thankful less fun (laughs) (laughs) thank you all we'll talk to you next week on slate money Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.